Hey, Corey, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm great. It's good. It's been a while. It has. Good five years, maybe. Even more. Yeah, probably. I can remember it, actually. Yeah. <laughs> we were in the roof working for our old mate, Ryan Scrapheat Ardle. <laughs> uh, we were installing air conditioning, and you said to me, I'm thinking of learning to fly. <laughs> and uh, at the time, I thought, oh, here's another one, because I've heard that a lot from a lot of people over the years. Yeah. And um, but I was I was encouraging, wasn't I? Yeah. No, you were. And um, yeah. here you are. You've just well, literally flown a plane around the world. Yeah, it was exciting. Which I think is a, a freaking amazing. <laughs> and that's why we're having a chat today so I can hear about this story Mm -hmm. so over to you Uh, well yeah I guess it started with um, working with a bloke doing a fire spotting down in Victoria last summer Yeah, and um, basically just becoming mates him is an old bloke in his his 70s and and works uh, at a P&G most of the time, but helps out this uh, fire spotting contract, and then just stayed in touch with him because he's a good contact and stuff to know. And he uh, sent me an email one day because that's how people of that age group communicate normally. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he said he'd been busy and blah blah, and he was supposed to be ferrying a, a, a plane to Canada. And I just replied, you know, how are you? All that sort of stuff, blah blah. And I said, do you need a co-pilot? And then about I don't know. A day later, he calls me. He's just like, "How busy are you?" <laughs> In a bit of a panic, and um, yeah, just wanted to know whether I was free and what the go was and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, "Yeah, I'm 100 percent keen. Always want to do something like that, so mm. wouldn't turn it down." How could you? I know, yeah. So, and um, yeah, then it, it all had to happen very quickly. It was uh, coming up in like a, a week and a half or something. And he had to organize a whole bunch of stuff and he was still working with his other job and had family commitments. So, Is this something yeah, that he had done before? He's done a few ferries with like things like King Airs and Dash 8s and stuff, um, but nothing like that small since oh, maybe back in his like, 30s or something he'd, he'd done some smaller stuff, but... Usually, just because he worked out of PNG, it was built in the delivery of an aircraft from somewhere. Um, so he hadn't done a ferry for a fair while, good fifteen or twenty years. He was probably happy to have a sharp young mind with him. Well, yeah, it turns out once we uh, uh, got to about Broome, um, he had to do. We had left from Maitland in Sydney, in Sydney area, and. Um, we had a CASA guy with us to do some checking for him and stuff because his PNG license needed to get an Aussie uh, IFR renewal and all that sort of stuff done and checked off in the aircraft. And um, we got rid of that guy in Alice Springs. And then we flew to Broome and he was just like, mate, if you weren't with me right now, I'd be, I'd be heading home. <laughs> okay. Because basically the reason he wanted me to come was because he's been flying Dash 8 for the last 20 years and, Oh, FMS and the way everything works is completely different to a, uh, you know, light aircraft. 
thing like a, a TPM with a different sort of GPS setup, and he's just got no idea. He just he's just like I can't relearn this sort of stuff now. <laughs> well beyond that, so he wanted me to do all that sort of stuff. And yeah, once we got to to Broome, he'd realised that he'd thrown himself in a real deep end. It sounds like it. Just yeah. just to go back a step for people that are listening that have no aviation experience. Yep. Um, a few things you just mentioned would have gone over their heads, really, and mine too, in yeah. particular with the aircraft. Okay. What was so special about it? Um, well, it was, a, it was a TBM 850, which is an aircraft that's basically a, a single-engine turboprop, um, pressurized, so it can go up to you know, 30,000 feet. I think 33,000 feet is its ceiling, which is pretty high. And um, Had you ever flown pressurized before? No. Right. Okay. All right. <laughs> so it was all a bit of a sharp learning curve for, for me. And um, lucky I had spare time, so I had plenty of time to read up on. He sent me a bunch of aircraft info and stuff. And so I sat down and studied it because I knew that Tony didn't have much time to brush up on all of the systems and that that were going to be in this plane. Um, so, yeah, and, and just the, the type of GPS and, and the way the computer stuff all works in it is different to what, he had used it's quite similar to what i'd been using in the type of aircraft i was flying um Sounds yeah like it's definitely it, yeah. a bit lucky a bit days for him. complex sorry lucky for him yeah he had yeah. what well, this, yeah. this plane supposedly for its size one of the fastest planes yeah yeah so it's it's only um realistically a uh, six-seater mm. uh, when it's set up for its kind of club seating it's just a fly you know, you rich people around, like company execs and stuff like that. Um, range of about a thousand to fifteen hundred miles. Okay. And um, yeah, it's up around three hundred and twenty knots is what you're meant to cruise at about thirty thirty one thousand or so feet. So it, it it's pretty quick for the size of aircraft and being a single engine turbine. Um, its running costs are quite low compared to something okay. of a comparable speed and um, ability, I guess. So, so you were having to think twice as fast as you normally would, as, yeah, far, as yeah. far as time across the ground. Yeah, at least and at least three times higher than normally would be. Mm. So, yeah, it's. Um, were you sitting there the whole time going, "What the fuck am I doing up here?" <laughs> yeah. A little bit. Um, there were times where I was just like thinking, oh, maybe, maybe I've, I've, you know, thrown myself in the deep end a bit too much this yeah, time. Right. Yeah, right. It's it definitely because Tony, um, he was, he was saying to me, he's like, this is a lot of this stuff's beyond me, so I'm, I'm relying on you. And then I'm sitting there going, oh, I don't, I don't know. Am I? Am I <laughs> up to this? Am I up to this or not? I don't, I don't know. So, but luckily, um. I just recently done um, one of my annual renewals for IFR, so I just been through. So that's all for the... instrument flying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've just been through that, and with the guy that does it, he's really thorough and good with the systems of the, everything you can utilize with the GPS and, and those sorts of systems. So um, that really helped a lot. The fact that I just just can't currently done that and had been had my head in that for a bit. Um, and yeah, so, and plus I hadn't been flying much just before it. So I was kind of looking for something interesting to do like that. So when I got in the books, it was, 
a bit more enjoyable than when you're just having to do it for normal day-to-day stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and no, I went pretty deep into it and I think um, it paid off, which is lucky. Yeah, well, that's right. Um, Imagine if you hadn't have done all that study and you got halfway there and thought, I don't even know how this thing works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a... Uh, it was definitely a steep learning curve the first couple of flights that were, you know, wasn't perfect, but we figured it out. So what was the what was the route that you took? Because um, going so by a broom, in my mind, seems like the long way. Yeah, well, because of the whole Russia stuff going on, normally you'd go up kind of straight up and around Japan and over through Russia into Alaska and down that way. Mm. Um. Being the type of aircraft it is, you can't really put bladder tanks in it, which uh, is what some people would do and go go across the Pacific Islands and maybe do the stretch over to Hawaii and stuff like that. Mm. Um, but, yeah, so we couldn't really put bladder tanks or do anything like that. So we're a bit limited with that. And, yeah, getting permits in and out through Russia and stuff wasn't going to really work out. Um, so, yeah, we, went, we were going the other way, which was a bit more... Uh, a bit easier logistically with everything that was going on. So, yeah, we went, um, started in Maitland, obviously near, near Sydney and hopped across and uh, went to uh, all the way across to Alice Springs really and then we stayed there and hopped on over to Broome and then we were stuck in Broome a couple of days because we had um, uh, oxygen supply. Basically, the emergency oxygen for if we have a depressurization, we'd need that up high to basically enable us to have emergency descent and not go loopy with hypoxia. Yeah. Um, so that wasn't actually pressurized to where it should have been. So we there was no engineers in Broome that could help us at the time, so we were stuck there a couple of days. And luckily, Tony knew some guys through Cobham who run a, a border force stuff out of there. And we did a bit of a um, – he came over and helped us out and got us on our way two days late, but that all worked out. And um, from Broome, we went uh, to Denpasar. Obviously, you had to get fuel there and then up to Singapore for fuel again and then to Bangkok for the night. And then so, the next... so Broome to Bangkok in a day? Yeah. Yeah, yep. okay. Which is a fair stretch for – you know, a light aircraft. Mm. Um, long day. Um, each flight was, you know, three to three and a half hours at least. Did you have a toilet? No, no toilet. Wow. Um, that comes into play a little bit later in the uh, trip. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, overnight in Bangkok, which was our first real, that was our first kind of real long day of flying this thing and and it was the really only place where we came into a bit of weather. Um, so we had a bit of diversions and we're getting close to running pretty min fuel type stuff. And um, we ended up arriving. We didn't plan to arrive anywhere in the dark. We wanted to land everywhere in daytime. But we ended up into Bangkok at nighttime, which, you know, just makes things a little bit more full on. Yeah, but, definitely. Um, Especially if you've never been there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a bit of a, bit of a surprise and getting in there were pretty wrecked and, um, next day out of there, we went through to Bangladesh, 
and across India um, through Nagpur, which was really hot. I think it was about 50 degrees on the ground. Um, and then to Karachi in, in Pakistan until we overnighted again. And um, it turned out the night we got to uh, Karachi, Imran Khan was doing some big street political thing going on and basically the whole town was out in the streets and the streets were blocked and we were staying at, at a airport hotel nearby. It was like Hilton or something like that. And you could have walked there in about 10, 15 minutes, but it took us about 50 minutes in a, in a taxi to get there because streets were just completely blocked and yeah right yeah the cops running around with their machine guns and all that sort of stuff and people 20 people on top of a bus driving around everywhere and it was a bit hectic i'd say um and then from there we um we went through abu dhabi and then uh, riyadh in saudi arabia which was also very hot very dusty and um, unreal massive airports, something of them I'd see, something like as big and just the, the business side of things because we were parking in the kind of bizjet side as people. Your little um, plane would have looked tiny. I, it looked so insignificant. Mm. There's, you know, the shakes getting on their big 737 with only three passengers going to fly somewhere and stuff like that and they're just parked everywhere, just these big jets. And um, they're only ever flying a few, you know, a few people, a handful of people. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it was just this tiny little thing parked in there. And then um, from there, went to a place called Haggadah in Egypt, which is a coastal town um, just uh, in the Suez kind of um, Gulf area there. And um, where a lot of Russian tourists go. Okay. So we overnighted there and we stayed in one of the hotels, the beach hotels um, there. And I think that night we we ate at the buffet and I just decided to try everything. <laughs> and um, yeah, the next day I woke up feeling not super flash and um, couldn't really keep anything inside me. So yeah, that's when the whole toilet thing came in as they are. Uh, bit of a problem doing you know three hour three and a half hour flights and having no access to a toilet mm. and a bit a bit of a uh a thing where i'd, I'd for the rest of the trip basically I, I stopped eating and drinking any water or anything at about eight o'clock at night and then would go most of the day without really even drinking water until the end of the day where i'd then scull a bunch of water and eat a bunch of food to Keep alive. Again. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it was, um, yeah, it was a bit of a struggle from there onwards. Um, I'm really surprised that you didn't have some sort of like portable toilet or something. No, well, we, we, we had a bucket and a bag if it was like okay, really bad, but it being quite a small uh, cabin, it was not a very desirable thing to go to the toilet in there. I don't think you no. get rid of the smell very easily. Yeah. It's not like you can open your window when you're pressurized. No. <laughs> no. So, yeah, that became a fair inconvenience. Mm. Um, but, yeah, from, from Egypt, we went way over, flew over Cairo and all that sort of stuff. Didn't get to see any pyramids. We were looking, but we couldn't find any. 
Oh. Which was, yeah, it's a bit of a bummer. Um, and then we went to Crete in Greece, which was really cool. That was an amazing little island stop because they had a, there's a big mountain there. It still had snow on it, but we landed on the, on this runway that's basically you come over a cliff top and it runs parallel to the coastline. And um, it was this beautiful weather. The ocean was blue and just felt like, you know, a little Greek paradise kind of thing. Mm. And um, so that was a really, really amazing looking spot. Was it, then, was it surreal flying over these countries that you'd probably never visited but you'd read about or heard about or was – Yeah, see, I'd, I'd never been to Europe. I'd only ever been to places like uh, Japan and the States and Canada and that. So I'd never been – anywhere over that sort of area at all mm. so it was all a bit of a, a shock to the system seeing all these countries and you know getting to stop in them and, and chat to people and like just flying come. over india and looking down and going there's there's billions of people down there yeah that was that was pretty unreal when you, you look at that and and how sprawled out everything is and yeah. Yeah. Once once you land and the aircraft shuts down, and it's a bit quiet again. You go talking to the people and you you know have a chat with them while you're refueling and stuff, and then just look around and yeah, take it in and get a bit mind blown at just how big the world really is. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Now people have no idea where you're from, not even mm. the slightest idea of, of where it is or yeah anything like that, and and especially over, over places like Saudi Arabia and that that was pretty amazing just these huge expanses of of just nothing and then these green circles in the middle of nowhere and this little villages and stuff where they obviously irrigate to grow stuff in the middle of nowhere mm. and um yeah and just dusty nothing living just dirt and dust everywhere and just miles and miles of nothingness and then just these really big built up dusty sandy looking cities yeah, I can't imagine um, it. I've never been to any of those places. Yeah, so it was pretty unreal. And then even over places like Bangladesh and and all that sort of stuff, just the, how built up it is and industrial and all that sort of stuff. It's pretty cool to see. Mm. Did you, um, like, when you were refueling and uh, passing through other countries, did you have to pay like um, graft and corruption type money or... So we um yeah, every everywhere was basically all pre organized because you have to have the fuel releases because you're taking fuel out of the country. Yeah, okay. So there was a company that organized all of our paperwork with that sort of stuff like the crew visas and all our fuel releases and that. So basically we had um all these numbers and stuff we had to give them like purchase orders and stuff like that. And then they'd just fill fill you up, and we'd sign that, and that'd go. So the fuel was all covered in that. But then, uh, in India, was the one place we carried a bunch of bribe money um, each, basically the limit of what it was in US that we could carry um, for that. Because there are countries that we've been told that you know you can get kind of stuck, and it's easier just to give them a water cash and get going than have to deal with any of the repercussions of it. Mm. Um, lucky enough, we didn't actually have to do that, but I think we came close in India. Um, they kept having issues with our flight plan and it was, it was really ridiculous. It was basically just a waypoint they wanted changed. We didn't have access to a computer or internet or anything. 
And so I was on the phone to them telling them just to, you know, amend our flight plan and, and give it to us, the new flight plan, when we call up for our airways clearance and stuff like that. And they're like, no, you need to, you need to change. And I'm like, okay, well, can I have access to a computer? And we ended up going to this guy's little office and he gave us internet onto our phone and we did all that sort of stuff. And they kind of just, just kept coming out with different reasons why we couldn't depart. Okay. And um, I, I, I reckon they were kind of just waiting for us to be like, oh, here's some money, let us go, kind of, you know, can we get this thing going? Yeah. Because they kept just coming up with different really obscure reasons why we couldn't, you know, depart or anything like that. And it was quite a, it was actually quite a, a um, quiet airport. Right. Okay. Um, in Nagpur, it was only a flight every half an hour or something like that. So it's not like it was busy or there was anything like that to deal with. Um, so, yeah, they, they just keep going back and forth and then we end up sitting in this little room and they actually kind of locked us in there for a little bit, which was strange. Um, <laughs> just sitting there in this little box room, like kind of like a mud brick thing with a weird evaporative air conditioner thing on the on the side wall that was just a bunch of straw in some chicken wire and that that just had a, a tap running over it and a fan on the inside. <laughs> And we're just sitting in there, it's kind of, what is going on? Um, so, yeah, that backed and forth a little bit. We never ended up giving any money. And um, we got out of there. And that was the closest, I think. But we had heard there are places, and sometimes, depending on who you get, they they just say, oh, there's a new tax or whatever. And the guy who bought the plane had sent given us sent a bunch of cash for us to carry. He said, you know, when it comes to that, he's like, just pay it yep. and get out of there because sometimes – it, the guy that actually bought the aircraft used to ferry planes for a living. Okay. So he's, he's done all of it for years, you know, 20 plus years or something. So he knows all the tips and tricks with that stuff. And he's just like, yeah, it's easiest, easiest just to kind of maybe barter with him a little bit and give him a, a bunch of US dollars and get on your way. I didn't realize until recently that there's companies that specialize in just doing that. In? Ferrying planes around the world. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Is that something I mean, that interests you? Um, yeah, after I reckon doing it, I, w- I was thinking, oh, the guys that do this definitely earn their money. This is a hard job. I'd, I'd never really considered all that, the aspects to it. Like we're, we're flying west, so we would, not in the air, but our day would start and end. It'd be about a 15-hour day almost, mm. but it'd be about 4.30 in the afternoon when we'd finish. And yeah, that's weird. So you, your body's a bit like, oh, oh, this has been a really long day, and you're pretty knackered. And then you go out to your hotel, and it's probably pretty late at night normally from where you've just come from. Yeah, and you're still awake, and then you go to flight plans. So I was having to do the flight plans the next day and submit them all, and then basically go to bed and then wake up, you know, six seven hours later, and then do it all again, and then to land in the next place for it to be even later than where you would have been the night before, and it just snowballs onwards. And a you perpetual get jet just, lag. Yeah, you just feel really delirious and you've just got no concept of time anymore. Wow. And, um, yeah, we, we ended up getting, once we got to Scotland, we um, we decided to take a couple of days because I was knackered from not being able to retain any food or water. Mm. And um, Tony being, you know, in his 70s, he was feeling it a bit. So we're both pretty happy to be like, oh, we know our limits. Mm. Let's take a couple of, a couple of days here. Good idea. But, yeah. Did you get nervous at all while you're like f- afraid for your life or anything like that? Did you run into um, any, any sort of trouble? 
been a few instances, but nothing that you don't kind of deal with every now and then kind of stuff. I think the main one was the Atlantic crossings. Um, basically the Scotland to Iceland and Iceland to Greenland and Greenland to Canada were the points where we were kind of sitting there monitoring everything very closely. Um, so what was, from your point of view, what was um, your concern there? Uh, basically, it's just such a, a wide expanse. You're over water. We're in a single-engine turbine, mm. um, which people do it in single-engine piston aircraft, which oh, no way, <laughs> not a chance I would do that mm. after doing it. It's just such a remote area and you're just so far from any help and once if you do go into the water the no, temperature you no one's coming yeah no no one's coming and even if they do come by the time they get there you somehow if you miraculously landed and didn't destroy the aircraft on impact and were able to get into a life raft and all that sort of stuff without getting in the water or anything I, that would just be a very, very low percent chance of actually pulling that off. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a long way. The, and you, you do, obviously, like when doing your flight training stuff, you learn about point of no return and all that sort of stuff. And you never really, I've never really come across it in the flying that I've done. It's always been close enough or you, you're always within a certain distance of something or it's it's never really been a limiting factor when you're flying around you can always make a decision with enough time but you get halfway across part of the atlantic there or something and you got to go okay where only there's only one place we can land so the weather's semi-marginal you know we've got to hope you know look at what the what it's looking like and hope that the weather the forecast is correct because well given the distances if, you're traveling the weather could change yeah and yeah, yeah, yeah. And it did. It does, yeah. And um, it is not, you know, obviously the weatherman's never correct. <laughs> <laughs> so were you so, over the Atlantic in the dark? No. no so okay. we, we did that. We were, were meant to do quite a long day. Originally they had, had us planned to do it, um, quite a lot of it in one day. But we basically were like, no, we're just going to do it kind of one step at a time. We did the Scotland to iceland in a in a day just so we could do it in the middle of the day when the weather was preferable mm. um so we knew that we'll you know be able to get in and then we did the iceland to greenland um basically one day and the same day went greenland over to goose bay in canada um but we were meant, were meant to go longer and we were originally meant to go scotland iceland greenland and then over to Canada, I believe, all in one day. They wanted us to get it all done because there's a lot of it's daylight till yeah, okay, almost almost daylight till midnight, twenty four hours. Yeah, mm. it, um, so you really could fly most of the day, and that's kind of how they had us planned. But we pulled the pin on that. We wanted to go in the middle of the day for going land, get arriving places like Iceland and, and Greenland to try and avoid things like fog. Yeah, and stuff like that, and and when we yeah when we went to Greenland, everywhere else it was weather was we were looking at a weather window to get in, and and our original planned place was um basically just buried in weather, 
there was only one airport down south that had favorable weather and that was the next day was going to close in and probably be another week or more till we get through so it was basically decided to go the day we did or, or wait a week and um yeah so that um that was interesting going what did, what did you use for weather info and flight planning i bet you didn't have something as good as oz runways um well we had um four flight okay which is what a lot of the people i think it's from the states mainly but it's um it's actually a pretty good program um it's like obviously like oz runways and that but has all the global charts and things okay. like that and right so you did have something that was Workable. Yeah, that that's what we imagine. Use for imagine it. doing it. Imagine being Amelia Earhart. <laughs> oh, unbelievable! Uh, yeah, even even with the technology and stuff we had, I was thinking the guys that did it, you know, flying planes, all that sort of stuff for a living, are pretty gnarly. But yeah, thinking back back to those days, that's just a whole other realm of it. You'd mm. you'd have to have some serious, obviously, really good knowledge, but obviously. You have to have the guts to commit to things and know that you know you've made the right decision. Mm. But yeah, so yeah, that definitely the the Atlantic side of things was. Uh, <laughs> it's a long way, and you're sitting and you don't see any land, and you're just looking down at a freezing cold ocean that no one's yeah no one's coming, no one, no one at all. And then getting closer to Greenland, it was. There was fog all on the coast, and because of about you know around the halfway mark, we make the decision. It's like okay, we check the weather over um, ATC, and they give us kind of like a weather report, and then we decide you know we'll continue not turn back. And um, once you make that decision, it's not not far from that decision point that you're basically fully committed to that uh, one airport, and then that's that's your only option. And, um, yeah, approaching Greenland, there was a lot of coastal fog and, um, we were starting to get a little, a little nervous seeing, seeing so much fog around the coast. And then, um, but as we got over, it was quite a fair way up a fjord, the place we we're going to. Um, so we were obviously hoping that that was not going to be fogged in, which is what we've been told by the local knowledge that the fog only go, usually goes about a certain way up the fjord area and as you get closer to the mountains and stuff where the strip is which is right on the edge of the the water there's icebergs all the way up there and everything which is really amazing but it, it generally doesn't get fogged in as much just because of the terrain around okay um so yeah as, as we got in closer we eventually could see that that area wasn't fogged in and by far the most breathtaking scenery i'd ever seen we were both kind of a bit speechless for a good 15 minutes as we were flying in over it too busy flying, but you want to have a look as well. Yeah. So once we kind of had the confidence and we'd then was it close enough to speak to the guy on the ground, um, they have a little tower there mm-hmm. at the place, N- Nasa Swack. Um, speak to the guy there and he gave us the weather and stuff. And so we were pretty confident from then on and we had enough fuel. So we'd, we actually, once we got a little bit closer, did a little bit of a scenic we um, because the mountains were huge there, just massive, and they run all the way down to the coastline, and um, you see the big glacial flows, and it just looks like a little dirt road. But as you get closer, you realise that little cracks are probably you'd put the plane in there, and no one would even see it. Mm. And um, so as we got close, we kind of 
went a little bit off track and had a little bit of a, a look around and flew through a bit of a valley and looked at some of the ice flows and cliffs and stuff like that, which, yeah, was was breathtaking. We were just, we once we leave and landed, we were just standing there looking around a little bit gobsmacked. Just the uh, raw nature and how remote it all was and then just in the middle of absolute nothing, it's just this tiny little village town and then an airstrip. Mm. So, and, ha- and how insignificant we are. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was really that that whole across the Atlantic whole thing, basically, we were, we were both just felt very insignificant. Mm. And, um, yeah, it's just a little bit of a reality check, really, of how big the world is and how it's so, so easy to get caught just in your own little area and mm. not so, thinking about. So how did that little episode then affect you as you move into other sort of areas of your life? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I guess always been pretty keen on traveling and stuff, but it's made me want to try and move around a little bit more, maybe mm. experience living in some different places rather than even just traveling to them. So mm. it's, um, and pay attention to what's going on around the place rather than just your own little backyard. Yeah. It's just, is it, you know, you speak to the locals and stuff in those sorts of places and they've all got their stories of what's been happening, especially with all the, the last couple of years. Mm. Everyone's, every country's got a completely different story. Have so, they? Yeah, and you just don't hear that. So it was really good to kind of move around and, and chat to people like that and every every place we kind of had a bit of a chat with the people. And It's funny how like we, re- we rely on the media to tell us the truth. Yeah. <laughs> something i believe they're incapable of mm, me too um did you ever have any whole... um air traffic communication problems like language Lots. language wise plenty okay um <laughs> the uh the good bit was southeast asia was pretty good mm. um they were, they were yeah they were actually really good but getting into like places going through um into bangladesh was getting a little tricky sometimes. Um, and obviously their procedures in some of those places are a bit different to what I was used to because I wasn't only ever flown Australia. So, mm. um, yeah. And then getting into India, they were very particular about certain things that we believe weren't very relevant at all. Okay. Just a bit, a bit annoying things. And yeah, that they kind of, I don't know. They'd uh, make life a little bit difficult for us a couple of times. Just I don't know why. And um, and then going across the the Middle East, the language also was quite difficult. I think most of it because they 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 speak English and know English quite well, and obviously um, have to have to know it quite well. But I think they speak English to one another with their own accents a lot. Okay. So they kind of develop their own accent in the English language that is still quite hard for us to understand. A bit like trying to understand an Australian. Yeah, exactly. Mm. <laughs> or a Kiwi. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and then once you get to Europe, apart from Italy, Italy was the one exception that the English was very hard to understand. Okay. Um. The rest of Europe was very, very well spoken English. 
So yeah. So all all in all, it went smoothly. It actually, yeah, it it actually went not as to plan. Um, the original plan was pretty pretty tight, pretty busy, um, and me not being as experienced as someone probably should be doing that, and Tony being a bit older and he'd come off a pretty uh, busy work stint previously, so he was already wrecked and looking for his time off. Um, so yeah, we were both a little bit, uh, I guess. In over our, our depth kind of thing. Well, I say good on him for maintaining his instrument rating and his ability to fly internationally at in his seventies. Yeah, because yeah. I I wouldn't want to be. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot. It's a lot to keep up there in your head. Yeah, yeah, and not to mention he's a he's a uh, a dash eight check and training captain and and sim instructor as well. So yeah, wow. It's it's not like he's any slouch, so no, yeah, it's um pretty impressive. Yeah, very like, impressive, especially after such a, a long career of flying as well, mm. maintaining that standard just year after year after year kind of thing in itself is is a lot of work. Mm, definitely. Um, see, obviously he knows his limits and is happy to admit when reaching a limit, which is good. And I so bet you're both. now you're now his offsider for the next one. <laughs> Yeah, so he uh, he always makes jokes about how I I I was there the whole time, just smacking his hand, telling him not to push buttons. <laughs> uh, that was probably true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He get, kept saying he's like, "Oh, me and my fat thumbs is going to kill us." Mm. <laughs> so yeah, there's a, a couple of times he he would push things while he was thinking about them. It wasn't necessarily the right thing to push at the time, mm. which um, obviously can change uh, something going on the aircraft quite quickly. And then if I didn't pick up on it, it'd take me a little while to backtrack and figure out what he's done. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which we had lots of laughs about. So um, plenty of laughs on the whole trip, really. It's just, he's a classic guy. Lots of stories. So not too serious about everything, doesn't get angry or anything like that. So it was all really good experience, especially doing something like that with someone that has the confidence. Mm. Um, I think kind of helped me with my confidence with everything mm. to do with flying, not, you know, overconfidence or anything, but just that kind of, you know, if you work things through methodically, it's all going to work out and just use what you've got. Mm. So, yeah, it was a really valuable experience, I believe. I would yeah, 100% so glad I went. And, I'm um, so glad you went and I'm really proud of you and I'm so glad that, <laughs> that day in the roof you said that I'm thinking of learning to fly. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because you're you're contributing to the industry and you, you're good at it. Well, thank you. <laughs> you would... Um, uh, go on. Oh, I, I'd, I'd definitely love to do another, another ferry. It's just a uh, very strange, odd industry to get into and... Um, I guess you got to try and get into a couple of them with someone or something like that. So they don't always happen all the time. And the, the ones that do, they obviously go through certain companies. So, Well, you'd almost get pigeonholed um, in it and you'd find yourself stuck in there. I think so, yeah. Mm. And um, we met a couple of guys along the way, some interesting guys that had, were doing it, some older, some younger. And, um, yeah, they were very busy, flat out. And they had been for the last couple of years as well. 
considering there wasn't much going on, they were still quite busy. Can you imagine what it would be like um, ferrying a fire bomber by yourself? Oh, <laughs> they fill their yeah. they fill their water um, hopper yeah, up with hopper. fuel. Yeah, and um, they they do these kinds of ferries by themselves. Well, I yeah. think they I think they fly in um, formation or in company with others. Yeah, so doing the the fire spotting Victoria, they got the guys do the um, the Greece uh, the Greek contract as well. Okay, and so they ferry theirs over after the fire season, um, all the way over to to Europe. And um, obviously, they're not pressurized, so they go on ten thousand feet or so, and um, they're all VFR. They're not they're, those those aircraft are very agricultural and basic inside mm. there's not much to them in there not a lot of um, comfort either no no you're basically sitting on what is it? it's kind of like the like a hessian sack just about mm. stretched between two bars it's not much of a comfortable seat yeah they they do those ferries um vfr visual so i take my hat off yeah. to them yeah it's a pretty a pretty wild thing but i was uh thinking <laughs> Thinking about trying to contact them this coming year and seeing if they need anyone. Yeah, well, it could be good. Yeah, it could be something interesting. Mm. I so, bet you couldn't yeah. bet you couldn't believe it when you landed in Canada and you thought, oh, we're both, how the hell we're both, did this happen? We we're both very relieved. I think the whole trip there was a little bit of nerves, kind of leading up to the Atlantic crossing. Mm. That was kind of the the one thing we were both kind of you know concerned about. Um, being a single engine kind of thing, you have a flame out or any kind of thing like that, yeah. You just turn into a glider. Yeah. And um, even though the, the PT-6 is hyper engine in it, it's basically probably one of the most reliable engines ever made for anything, I'd say. Mm, beautiful um, engine. Yeah. Um, so smooth and just flawless, really. But you're still sitting there with just one engine going over the Atlantic and all – the whole trip, I think, we were kind of a little bit nervous about it, and then once, once we'd got to the mainland, Canada, I think we were both very relieved, mm. pretty pretty happy to be there. Yeah, what a what an adventure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a, a bit too quick. It would be good if you could have stopped in each country for a few days. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like even even when we're just overnighting after. I don't know five or six days. We felt like we'd both been away for a month. Mm. It felt it had felt like a month. The amount of the workload, everything we were doing, and it felt like we'd been doing a lot for quite a while. Mm. It only been quite a short time, but yeah, it would be amazing to do it and you know have two two nights or so and in each kind of stop and just plot your way along, kind of thing. The, in but Australia, guess, a couple of the hot topics are fatigue management and crew. Resource management. Yeah. And you guys had the fatigue, like full-on fatigue. Yeah. <laughs> which then contributes to a crew issue. Yeah. And good on you for, you know, being able to say, no, not that button or no, don't press that to a guy yeah. that was your senior. Yeah. From a crew resource management point of view. And I don't know if you've studied it or looked into it, but... Um, yeah, yeah. It's... Like the whole thing is an issue with regards both of those at once. Mm. Yeah, I think the, a lot of it was just having him having flown uh, 
the same aircraft basically mainly flying a, a dash eight for the last 20 years kind of thing a lot of things become automatic i guess mm, mm. to him uh, and instinctual so when you get in a different plane and for some reason the french would put buttons in different spots that you know might have been in another spot in another aircraft him just lightly pressing one button that wouldn't actually do anything normally um in that aircraft would all of a sudden disengage autopilot at 30,000 feet mm. and um you know things can go pear-shaped quite quickly that's um, right and add, add to that add to that like almost absolute fatigue yeah yeah and as we yeah, know it's... fatigue is as you know is as good or if not worse than being drunk yeah oh yeah 100% i even doing uh, other job I was doing recently, driving snowcats down at um, Mount Hotham, you do such long hours there and you get to a point where you just feel drunk. Mm. You can't string sentences together properly. Uh, yeah, you, you're just all over the place. Yeah. And so, trying to sleep during the day yeah, doesn't cut it for getting the good sleep. No, nah, that's it. And when you don't have days off or anything like that, it, it just gets worse and worse and worse. What, a, what an interesting person you are, driving snowcats <laughs> when you're not flying around the world. Yeah, well, I do what I can. You like machinery. Yeah, I don't like talking to people too much. <laughs> and here you are on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, I know. Hmm. What, well, tell us about the snowcats. What are you doing them? Um, basically drive the, uh, the winch cats, so grooming the slopes at um, Mount Hotham there. They're... Um, a winch cat. Yeah, so it's about, it's kind of like a, a big bulldozer type thing. It has a blade on the front and a, a tiller on the back that's basically a rotary hoe, I guess you could call it, that churns snow up and then has a mount on the back that leaves it all pretty with the cord. And your blade used for dozing and pushing snow. And that also has a winch on a big turntable on the back that has a big boom. It looks a bit like a crane that swings around so you can turn around and do whatever with that out of the way and pull yourself up steep hills, really. So, so. this thing looks a pretty ungainly, gigantic thing. With looks like a scorpion, doesn't it? Yeah. With its big stinger tail hanging out. Yeah. It's a pretty cool, cool looking machine, I guess. How, how much do they weigh? Uh, they're about 13 and a half ton, I think, all, all loaded up. So here you are, thirteen and a half ton, and you're at, at night. Yeah, that's you can only do it at night. Is that right? Yeah, because obviously uh, during the day everyone's skiing on the slopes and stuff like mm. that. So we have to wait for them to be closed and 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 head on out. And so why why do they use a groomer? What why do they need it? Oh, basically, when everyone skis down the slopes all day, especially in Australia where we don't have the colder temperatures like overseas, um, things get bumped up pretty quick. Um, the snow gets bumped up for everyone turning and that, and it all gets pushed downhill, and then you'll have high spots that'll get blown out where everyone skis and pushes snow off of it, and it'll get run down the dirt pretty quickly. And So there's a lot of spots that, you know, snow needs to be basically dozed and, and pushed back to certain spots to stack it up again and and then smooth out all the bumps and then groom it, till it all out so it all looks nice and pretty and smooth and safe for everyone to ride the next morning. 
So you you were saying that you winch yourself up, the the cat's not powerful enough to drive itself up? Well, a lot of the a lot of the slopes you can uh just do in what we just call a free cat, which is just just doesn't have the winch on it. Mm. And um you can get up most stuff with them, but not maybe with the tiller down or blading. You can climb up, but you can't. As soon as you put your blade down, try and push snow, you'll just burn out, kind of thing. Or if you're trying to pull the tiller up, it just it just won't. So it's a kind of like a traction issue, I guess, a lot of the time. Are your are this, your tracks made of steel? Uh, aluminium. Aluminium. They they got about uh, five five big thick rubber bands that hold them all together and then there's they're called grouser bars which run kind of horizontally and they're what make the contact with the snow and they're about every oh, about 150 mil spacing along the track so you'll have about six meters of of those all on the ground how how wide's your track a uh, good mm, probably just shy of a meter and a half yeah okay so either size so you got you know about three meters wide i guess you're looking at contact on the ground that way and then so essentially it's quite a heavy machine but it doesn't um doesn't sink too far yeah okay. deep into the snow kind of thing so you can what normally you know say if you drove into it with a car you just sink straight away yeah because your contact points are quite small but it spreads out the load so how do you know what's level what's up the sideways Drift, how do you know all that stuff? Um, I guess a lot of it's local knowledge in some spots. Okay. Um, so would you worked... normally groom the same runs? Um, yeah, so I'd normally, well, you start off doing the free grooming stuff and so you learn all the more basic areas and then once you get to a point, you, you drive the winch cats and so you winch, do the winch runs and yeah, you, you, you get an idea of oh, how the way the land goes kind of thing and, and where the snow goes and it'll blow into certain spots and other bits it'll get scoured off of and some spots will never hold snow. And so, you know, every day you got to try and just put more and more in one spot or some areas get blown in all the time. So you're constantly having to strip it down and, and dig it out. Um, yeah. And you just get an idea of, of where everything's meant to be and where it all goes and what to do. They do have technology now that using LIDAR and, all sorts of other stuff to scan the depth. Okay. And like, you know, a bit like a, a sounder in a, in a boat, I guess, um, where they drive over and you can see, you know, where the depth of snow is and stuff. But it, at places like where, you know, Australian stuff, I don't think that's really that beneficial. I think the, I don't know, in the lay of land and, and just poking around is a little bit of a better way of doing it. Um, yeah. I've had a look in one of those cats, and there's a lot of controls, <laughs> and way more than you'd find in a plane or, an, or a helicopter or anything like that. Um, yeah. Is are you operating the winch as well, or is that automatic? Um, it's kind of I'd say I'd call it semi-automatic. You, you you tension up when you hook up to your anchor point, and then it sets at a minimum tension, which holds about uh, just over a ton kind of tension on the winch and um, you've got a dial, like a thumb dial on the joystick where you can dial it up all the way up to about four to four and a half ton. Um, depending on, you know, if you're dropping down something steep and you don't want to slide because you know, 13 ton machine going down something quite steep, 
the tracks can lock up and you can slide quite easily. So you, you dial the winch right up. So it's taking about four ton of pressure off you. So you don't slide and you go down or when you're coming up, you don't want to burn out. So you can dial up. You try to run it as low as possible kind of thing. So it's not taking power out of the engine and the rest of the hydraulics and all that sort of stuff or burning it out really. There's a bit to it. Um, yeah. The newer ones, the newer ones that you can have an automatic setting Okay. Um, where it'll just sense when you need more pull and it will just, it'll pull with mm. some of the, I haven't driven one of the, the brand new ones like that, but I've heard it's, it's good, but it doesn't kind of pre preempt it, which sometimes you kind of need that um, coming up to a steep breakover or something, you, you know, you're going to need more tension or something like that. Or when you're about to slide or something, you need it. Whereas it kind of just reacts to a, state that you're in so it's a little bit slow sometimes the automatic stuff and you're doing this in any weather any weather so it could be like bucketing down with snow or rain or it could be fog on the ground and you're there yeah torrential rain which is awful um sometimes yeah just fog you can barely see what's going on and sometimes just blizzards it's just blowing it doesn't have to be snowing even that much just the wind will make it just about zero viz and um, yeah, well, I, pretty... I just can't get my head around how you know where you're going when when you got no viz <laughs> sometimes it's hard really hard um a lot of the time the tracks are kind of worn where you, where you will be grooming like if you're winching you've obviously got a cable connected and you kind of know the directions of yeah, okay. where you need to set a pass and once you set a pass you can work off of that one yep um when you're moving around, driving out of spots, a lot of places can be drifted in quite quickly. So sometimes it's, you know, a little bit of local knowledge and knowing where you are and what's around and where you need to go and the lay of the land. And then sometimes there's a bit of a cookie trail kind of thing left when you cut a bank or, or you try to where spots that drift in like that, you try to leave a bit of a bank so that next time you come through when it's drifting in, you can kind of have a telltale sign of where, you know, the track might be or where you need to go. You definitely do sometimes get a little bit lost and sometimes you might think you're moving and you're not even moving because the wind's yeah, just blowing right. that hard and <laughs> it's just you're just getting vertigo just about. And add to that, as you said in the beginning, the fatigue factor. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. you're doing this every night for how many hours? 14? Yeah. And you're sitting there in this thing, like you probably start your shift tired. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you, you go to work and you tired already and then you look at all your mates and their eyes are hanging out their head yeah everyone's a zombie pretty much the whole time mm. which would yeah. be funny in some ways oh yeah it's funny and i guess you start to feel a little bit drunk so it's good when you have a good crew and you have a good laugh and everyone kind of just keeps you going yeah so do you all chat to each other. other all night while you're out there yeah there's 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 a fair bit of shit talking i guess mm. keeps everyone yeah that's good entertained important a yeah, sometimes, you know, you, you can tell there'll be a period where everyone's just got a fair bit on and there's just no chit-chat or something. So one of us will try and stoke something up a little bit just to give someone a little bit of a, a laugh. Mm. Um, just the good camaraderie. Keep, yeah, just to keep them going a bit. So, mm. But, yeah, it, um, it's surprising how when you're busy constantly how it flies by, you know. Mm. Midnight will come around and that'll be like our lunch break kind of time where you go in for... 20 minutes half an hour or something mm. and it feels like you've just done a couple hours 
and but you've done a full eight hour shiftery. Yeah, yeah. And then you go back out for another seven hours or so. Yeah, right. And then everyone just sees the the corduroy as you called it and ski over yeah. it and go woohoo and without a yep. thought to the guys that have been there every night. Yeah, and by, you know, mid to late morning it's usually completely trashed and bumped up and then the complaints come in, oh they didn't groom last night, it was bumpy and Mm. No one, no one actually knows because they didn't get out early enough to see it. Yeah, that's right. There's someone explained to me once that while people are skiing, that a fair amount of the snow that was at the top is now at the bottom. Yeah, and so I, that's I, part of what you do, isn't it? Yeah, constantly trying to bring it up. Yeah, because um, otherwise, yeah, that unless you have consistent snow coming and stuff like that, it'll just work its way to the bottom and then trying to get. It all all the way back up after Amazing. letting letting a run to deer out is a, is a big job. So yeah, it's a, a medium job every night. Do you love doing it? Um, it is fun. I think I've done it for too long now that it's become a bit boring. Mm. Um, it's fun kind of going and, and doing things like building building something when you're building like a, a big jump or some okay. sort of yep. terrain feats and stuff sometimes. So. Things like that. I think that's the next kind of thing to keep yourself entertained is when you're doing stuff like that. Mm. When just the day-to-day jobs of it, just the grooming can get quite monotonous. And so you try to mix it up, find a job to do, you know, rebuild a run or something. So you go for, you spend eight hours on one run, just dozing and rebuilding it and making it good again. That can kind of keep you into it a little bit. But yeah, the the day-to-day of it, I think... It's one of those jobs I don't think you could do forever. Mm. And um, I hadn't planned to do it ever after I left and went to flying. But since what's been going on the last couple of years, it's been a little bit on and off with flying. So, Got to take what you can get. Yeah, and I've struggled to get experienced people from overseas because, mm. um, you know, there's a lot of issues with getting people now. Mm. And so, yeah, they just got begged and made a mind running the show now so i went down and did a six-week stint to help out yeah well that would have been nice rather than a full full season yeah well that was it i think i don't think i'd be able to do a full season again especially not there or anything like that it'd just get a little bit on my nerves i think one of my mates uh, michael whips he's in mount beauty used to be a ski Mm -hmm. patroller falls he said the trouble with the resorts is a lot of people that work in them don't know when it's time to give it up. Yeah. And they stay yeah. there too long. Yeah. And I think that yeah. could be said for any job, really. Um, yeah, I reckon. Yeah. That there's you've got to figure out that time where it's time to ease back or, mm. you know, pivot or change direction or whatever. Yeah, I believe because a lot of jobs you get to a certain point and then there's not much of a progression onwards. And I think a lot of people without realising um, they need some progression to then entertain their lives. Otherwise, they just turn into alcos or mm. they just end up being the grumpy person that lives on the hill that then wishes no one came, but their job and their livelihood <laughs> actually revolves around people coming. That's hilarious, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a vicious cycle, I think, with some people that don't see that it's not a forever thing. Yeah. For a lot of a lot of jobs, there definitely are some jobs that lead to you know like upper management and things like that. If yeah, yeah, but quite you, rare. Generally speaking, you'll find when you're heading that direction that um, it'll be short lived anyway. 
Yeah. Because you'll figure it yeah. out. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. Awesome. Where does the cable live when it's not attached to you? It's in a big drum, so on the back with the, the winch. Oh, okay, so you just find the winch point at the top of the hill. Yeah, so there'll, there'll be big, there's big concrete bollards underneath the ground and then the big steel rods with a, you know, very heavy duty high tensile nuts and bolts and stuff with a, a sling, which is just a bit of another bit of kind of lift line cable, very yep, thick cable. Yep. Bolted to that, so then a couple of meters on that, so that when it snows, it can still be hung up above the snow level. Yeah, okay. And, and we hook onto that, and we have about a better kilometer of cable, right? On wow. the drum on the winch. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. What an interesting yeah, so, job you have. <laughs> Somewhat say the same about you. Well, yeah, I've done some interesting things. Uh, That's why I like talking to people like you. Yeah. What's the plan for the summer then? Um, basically myself and my wife will be going back down to Bansdale yep. for the fire spotting contract. Um, I've also got another job that's I'm not hundred percent sure when that will start, but it may start before or during or after. So I'm basically just on the, a bit of a wait list. So that's on, you got to be quiet about that for the minute? Uh, not necessarily. No. Um, but yeah, it's a. It's just a, another flying job, which yeah, will be cool. Yeah. What's your exciting. wife going to do while you're sitting on the fires? Well, she'll be she'll predominantly do the fire stuff. She's also a pilot. Oh, oh I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. In the family. So, yeah, that's it. So you're both. So she, are you both on bird dogs? Are you? Yeah. Wow. So we'll both do the same aircraft. So she'll she'll predominantly do the flying. Mm. Um, and I'm just there. I'll just be there as a backup. Right. And, okay. Because um, I've got a. It's her turn to have a go after you've had so much fun this year. That's it. Yeah. Mm. Pretty yeah, much. Fair enough and, too. Um, so yeah, and then you know we can split the split the wage, um, basically nice. however we want. And so for her, you'll just be her days off, will you? Yeah. Basically, yeah. That's a pretty good arrangement for any contractor. Yeah, yeah, it's not bad. The, the contract because you know essentially the money just goes to both of us anyway. It's mm, it's worth mm. a fair bit. So if we can both have it and no one else has taken the money, it's yeah, okay. We have it all to ourselves. Yeah, okay. And it's yeah, three and a half months. Someone a supplied house and all that sort of stuff. So perfect. Cost of living's quite and you get low. To, and you get to hang out. Yeah, I mean just just hang out. That's the best. Hang out with the dogs and. Yeah, that and every now and then get a phone call to go for a flight. Yeah, well, I don't know what this year's season's going to be like. It's pretty been pretty yeah. wet so far. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there'll be much flying. I think it'll be the uh, the old public holidays. They want to go up and have a look around. Hmm. So you fly the bird dogs in support of the bombers, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And um, just aerial observations for the DELP. Okay. Um, Victoria and the, the Gippsland area, yeah, the high country. Do you have any helicopters based where you are? Uh, no, there's one over at Latrobe Valley, which is not far. Yep. Okay. Um, yeah, that'd be the closest one. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Fair enough. Did you meet mm. her on Horn Island? No, we met driving snowcats. 
Is she a snowcat driver too? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, it sounds like another podcast coming up. Yeah. For the other side <laughs> of the story. Yeah, exactly. It's right, so she's a groomer too? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's a great. Yeah, so we, we met basically got stitched up. Did by, you? Um, well, you know, you do a job like that, you don't really want people in your machine at night. You're working on minimum sleep and pretty tired and don't want to just chat to random people. And she'd come over to visit her brother who was working at Hotham at the time. And she, the two, two of the guys I've worked with, she used to work with driving snowcats in Big White in Canada. Hmm. And um, basically she'd come over to see her brother and they were like, oh, you should go out and one of the cats, you know, see what it's like here. And she wasn't too interested in it at all either. And um, they had, they both had the night off with two mates and they were like, no, you should do it. But, you know, we aren't working. So go out with this guy, Corey, blah, blah. And um, yeah, and we met and chatted and I was a little bit shocked. And then we just stayed in contact and she was, you know, had started doing her flying training in Canada mm-hmm. and we just stayed in contact while we were doing our flying training and then she moved over, back over here. Um, yeah. And so when, you, when you'd go to do the snow cats, she'd come with you and drive snow cats at the same time? And she did. She did last year. This year she didn't because we didn't have an arrangement for our two dogs, which oh, okay. is a handbrake on everything really. Yeah, yeah. It's probably worse than having kids. It not, is, Not yeah. that having kids is bad. It's just harder to yeah. manage things. Yeah, especially when you one of your dogs is a complete feral. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right, what an interesting family. Mm. So what do you, when you're sitting up having a beer at night, do you talk about aircraft stuff or snowcat stuff or what? Uh, I talk about all of it. She, uh particularly doesn't like talking about all that stuff. Doesn't she? She likes to stay away from it because both of her parents were pilots as well, so wow. she's had enough of it. Yeah, and then far out. In, she's got, she's got in it jobs. in her blood. Yeah, and worked in jobs around boys' machinery and stuff and right. pretty uh, doesn't like talking about it all the time, not like men do, I guess. She sounds really interesting. <laughs> you have to get her on. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Tee She's it up. also a wedding photographer. She is? Yes. Okay. Wow. So if you know anyone that has having any weddings. <laughs> I don't, but yes, I'll keep it in mind. Are her parents still flying? Uh, no. Um, her mum retired quite a while ago and her dad retired well, probably 10 years or so ago. Mm, okay. Um, yeah. What, what sort of flying did they do? Um, so mum, Mary, she was an instructor and then she did border, border stuff up around similar where we worked at Horn Island for a while. And then she worked for the police wing. Um, and then she actually worked for ANSET. Okay. Um, and then her father has worked all over the world doing everything, but he's lost, you know, I guess 10 or 15 years or something of his career would have been with Cathay. Wow. Flying jets. Mm. So, yeah, I've lived all over the place. No wonder she doesn't want to talk about it. No, no, yeah. 
Africans has been an entire life. Yeah, it would have been. Would have been. <laughs> mm. I can imagine. Mm. Oh, what a story. Good story. Mm. Good chat. Yep. Yep. Matter, matter of fact, man, a few words. That's it. Yeah. I don't have, have much to say unless I can think. Yeah. You don't miss uh, putting air cons in? Um, no, I don't. I don't necessarily miss the actual work. I say I, I don't. I do miss like work, get working on the tools and doing stuff like mm, that. Mm. Um, and you know, the the chit chat and the and the and the mates and stuff. You know, when we're work, working together, always having a, a fair laugh. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I miss that kind of environment actually, because once once you start flying, you don't really get that too much. Mm. Um, things are quite strictly business, or some of the people you work with, you might not particularly like as much, or. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I do actually miss that kind of trade work where, you know, we'll be the Larrikins having a bit of a laugh and sweating it and getting the job done. Some of my favourite work days were with Ryan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because they were just so, fun. You know, he was a boss that made it fun and yeah, it was just fun. Yeah. And yeah, so I totally get you. And I've, I miss that, you know, being in aviation. Mm-hmm. Um. Ellie and I have started installing saunas. Oh, yeah, that's so right. Kind of like a good little on the side, working yep. with tools, hanging out together. Uh-huh. It's kind of fun. Yep. You'll have to show me how to how to install a sauna. Well, we've pretty much if you could put an IKEA thing together, you could install a sauna. Nice. Yeah, you should get one. They're good. I've always wanted one. Mm. I uh, am quite a fan of the sauna. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. I had one with this morning just before this. Oh, lovely. Mm. Cold Jealous. shower afterwards. Yep. Mm. Oh, they're brilliant. Mm. Yep. All right. Anything else you want to say to anyone? Um, no. I uh no, I didn't really think too much about this, so I didn't really know more what to say, but like you said, I'm a man of few words. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure there's aspects of your life, but also the story of just this year. What a busy year. Yeah. Um, you could go on and on and on about it. And, oh, yeah. um, but it, I think we got a snapshot of it, which was cool. nice. Yeah. And, a, yeah, a real adventure. Imagine if every yeah. year was like that. It'd be what? Whew. Yeah. I think I'd, I'd I need, need a quiet that. year. Yeah, I've almost gotten to the point now where I need a bit of time just to relax. I've been on the go for a while now. Yeah, well, after that, you guys did an overseas trip together as well, didn't you? Yeah, I got back and I was back a couple of days and we booked a trip to Turkey. Mm. We went five days after that or something back mm. to Turkey. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, it would have been surreal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. All right, mate. Well, awesome to chat after this yeah. little amount of time, and um, we do we do keep in touch, which is good. Yeah, and uh, look forward to what you've got to say next year. Yeah, well, hopefully the way things are looking, it's uh, it could be another busy twelve months. 
Mm, mm. Well, that's good. So, yeah. Navigating the matrix. That's it. <laughs> uh, what's your wife's name? Cassandra. Cassandra? Yeah. Yeah, oh, well, I'll have a chat to her and see if she probably doesn't want to talk about anything, but she never knows. She might. She's a, a woman of less words than me. <laughs> Sounds like a good couple. <laughs> okay, mate. Great. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll chat again. Yep. Sounds good. See ya. See ya.